I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Zierfandler and Rotgipfler. Both grapes have similar parentage. Rotterveltliner as one distinct parent, and something close to Sabinine as the other. As such, they can be considered sibling varieties, or at the very least half-siblings. Both are most likely indigenous to the Thurman region, and both are found in a few other places in the world. These grapes are the base of some of the great wines of the Thurman region. Sometimes they're vinified on their own, but you'll also find the two blended together. Stylistically, you can find sweet botrytis versions and also crisp dry whites. Rotgipfler means red tips and refers to the way the leaves redden at the edges around harvest time. Though they may not be the most popular grape varieties today, they are not new to the American market or to the global stage. The grapes, in particular Rotgipfler, was put on display at the Landmark World Fair the Paris Exposition of 1855. This was the special World's Fair at which Napoleon III was determined to put French products, including French wines, in the global spotlight. The fair is most often remembered in the wine world as the catalyst that sparked the genesis of the 1855 Bordeaux classification. But if you look back at the immediate results of the fair on wine sales, you'll notice a rather interesting detail. In the back of the catalog for the 1855 exposition, an innocuous entry for an A. Schwarzer from Vienna, Austria might easily be looked over. But Schwarzer's white wine won first place at the exposition. It was most likely Rotgipfler. And soon importers around the world were trying to get it. In New York, Cozen's General Wine Merchant acquired some of the award-winning wine in 1857 and they advertised the following in their June newsletter, fittingly titled, The Wine Press. The gold medal of the Paris Exposition of 1855 was awarded to the wines of A. Schwarzer and Company. These pure, wholesome, and economical wines now on sale in larger small quantities at 73 Warren Street. Farther down in the ad, you'll find mention of Mosul wines and wines from St. Julian, but the featured wine at the very top of the announcement was for Schwarzer's white wine. 
1855 exposition put these unique wines in the global spotlight. And a design flaw in the special exhibition hall may have stacked the decks for the white wines on display. It was extremely hot in the hall, and perhaps the mineral-driven whites, which may have been vinified slightly sweet, were just the thirst quencher in the sweaty environs. How fascinating is it to think that, as we rediscover these Thurman region gems, our pre-prohibition ancestors in the U.S. may have enjoyed the wines as far back as the 1850s. Keep listening to hear details from one of the top producers of these unique grapes. It's not enough to make great wine. You also have to reach the consumer that appreciates that wine. And that's where Offset is an incredible asset. Offset is an independent brand design and commerce technology company that connects with wineries on a human level to help them connect with consumers on a human level. Offset is based in wine country and staffed by creative strategists and technologists who are superb at helping create and evolve wine brands through visual identity and package design, developing the look, feel, and tone of your web content, as well as building beautiful and effective websites powered by their proprietary e-commerce platform, Offset Commerce. That's why leaders like Frog Sleep, Grace Family Vineyards, and Rain Winery already rely on Offset. Reach out to the brilliant team at Offset at OffsetPartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T partners with an s.com offset is focused on the wine industry and can embrace the nuanced needs of your wine brand bernard stottleman of vinegood stottleman on the show today hello sir how are you i'm very good Thanks for taking the time to be here. It's a pleasure. Thank you. So your winery is in the Theremin region? Correct. Yeah. That's um, pretty much in the center of the Austrian wine growing area, just south of Vienna. It's a 20 minutes drive to our winery from the city. And uh, from our vineyards, actually, you can see into the city center. So it's, it's that close, really. How should I understand the Theremin region? If people are familiar with Burgundy, in terms of topography, it looks a bit like Burgundy. It's a soft hill chain facing to the eastern side of Austria. And um, our vineyards are all based on limestone. And um, all the vineyards are along this hill chain on a slope. So limestone seems unusual for Austria because a lot of times I hear about loaves. Yeah, well, the limestone we are based on is part of the Alps. Uh, so we are on the eastern end of the Alps. And um, a second part of the limestone comes from seashells from former times. That would be another similarity that you have with Burgundy is that there's limestone in the bedrock. And there's also some historical connections to Burgundy as well. In terms of uh, like Cistercian monks who came in the 12th century to found a winery in our neighboring town, they brought some Burgundy grapes with them. Like you have Pinot Blanc in your vineyard. Exactly. But you're mostly known for grapes like Zierflunder and Roquefleur. Yeah, these two grape varietals are native to our region, both of them, and you don't find them anywhere else in Austria either. And why might that be? Especially when we talk about the Zierfander grape varietal, it's very difficult to grow. You get grape clusters that are compact. At the same time, 
the skin of the berries is very thin. So these two things makes viticulture very much a challenging thing. And um, we need a long ripening period as well. It's a very late ripening grape varietal. So all these factors account for um, a difficult grape to grow in the vineyards, really. Is that why we don't see it more frequently in Austria or in the world? Yeah, this probably is the main factor, really. Even within the reach, you need to find the right spots to grow. But then it tells a lot about the terroir, really. It's, this grape varietal is very sensitive to the terroir. And um, it also brings low yield, naturally. So um, in a commercial sense, this grape varietal probably does not make a lot of sense for producers in other areas where you would uh, fight much more with the pest control and things like that uh, to grow a grape varietal that brings only little volumes as well. It's difficult to ripen, it's sensitive to rot, and that probably means that the window is short because you need to wait till it gets ripe, but then if it rains on you, you have problems with tight punches and rot. Yeah, exactly, and that's really the challenging factor. But we've got warm and dry summers and uh, a long growing season into the autumn, and uh, every day we get kind of a cooling wind coming from the Alps, from the eastern end of the Alps, that really dries off the moisture uh, on the grapevines. So this is uh, also an important factor of getting uh, the grapes to, to perfect ripeness in a later stage. So you're in a bit of a rain shadow. Our hills shelter the, the rainy and, and stormy weather coming from, from the western part of Austria. And then Rokifleur, what's the story with that? Rokifleur looks very different by the grape already. And... Um, it looks more like a Chardonnay type of grape, so it's not a, so compact itself and the skins are not so thin. But um, you have to work carefully as well. This is quite the opposite to the Zilfander. You need to control the volumes before it gets to a certain stage of ripening. But then you get very beautiful wines, very aromatic wines out of this grape varietal. But it was not spread into other areas of Austria. And one of the things that's interesting about the Rokifleur is that the name implies red. Yeah. But it's a white grape. Exactly. So the the word rot in that case refers to the shoots of the vine. They are colored deep red in springtime. And it's a bit similar to, because there's a synonym for um, Grunewittliner, which is Weisskipfler. So the shoots on the Grunewittliner are very white. So that's where the name really derived from. Because there's a couple of white grape varieties in Austria where the the name sounds like a red, like Rotorvaliner. Yeah, most of the grape names where you have Rot inside actually turns out to be a white wine, whereas when we look at wines like Blauer Burgunder or Blaufränkisch, you've got the word blue inside, so that's re that really stands for uh, red wines. So you, you work with a number of grape varieties, but two of them in particular, from there and Rocket Flow, you really just don't see very often in other places. And even when we talk about our region, the region produces about 150 hectare of Zierfan and 150 hectare of Rotkipfler. So um, it's a small production, yeah, of these uh, indigenous grapes. And why do you think your family chose to stay with those two grapes? We have learned to work with these grape varietals over many generations. My family is working the, the vineyard for seven generations now, it's been always involved and worked with these grape varietals. And at the same time, they, they give really distinctive wines that I think people really appreciate. Wines made from both grape varietals, the Zierfander as well as from the Rotgipfler, are 
great wines to age as well. And this is a factor that has always been important for wines from our region. Maybe today people tend to drink the wines younger, but um, Tiefandler, you, you should wait for a few years. From a sales standpoint, what are the difficulties of selling wines from the Thermen region? Today, there's a lot of Grunewitliner, you know, grown in, in Austria. So this is, of course, uh, there's more, more budget, there's more wine behind to promote, to make it more prominent in magazines or even on the labels. You know, you see much more, more wine labels from Austria with, uh, with wines made from Grunewitliner. So at the same time, Austrian consumers tend to drink the wines in a very early stage, uh, so very young wines. Rotgipfler and Seefandler, they just, the wines, they need some time on the bottle to really show their qualities. And um, so today I think wines made from Seefandler and Rotgipfler are doing a little bit better on the international market where we can work with sommeliers and uh, consumers that are open to drink wines, which uh, had a little bit of time on, on the bottle. So you make three different Zierflander, and what are the differences between those? Yeah, we make more a classic style of a Zierflander, which comes from several vineyards around the Anninger Hill. So it's vineyards with wines of different age, um, ranging between uh, 5 to 35 years. This one we consider as a classic style, as it's uh, in the range of a cabinet level. Whilst we have two Zierflanders made from single vineyards as well, one vineyard is named Igeln, and the other one is Mandelhu. In these two vineyards, the vines are old. The vines in the Igeln vineyard, they're around 35 years old on average, and in the Mandelhu, they're around 50 years old. And um, these two vineyards are very close to each other, so in terms of soil type, they're, they're very similar. We're talking about a high concentration of limestone sediments from seashells, and in the Mandelhu vineyard, the, uh, the top layer of uh, weathered brown earth is only about 15 centimeters deep. Um, whereas if we go further down the hill in the Egon vineyard, the depth of the, the brown soil is about a meter deep. So um, that makes quite a difference to the vines and later on in the vine, really. So the Mandelhu is higher up the same slope and it has more shallow topsoil. Exactly, yeah. Because the topsoil washes down, probably. Yeah, it comes a little bit further down down the hill. So the Eglon is below it. Exactly, yeah. So um, the Mandelhu is it's really on the top of the hill, whereas the, the Eglon is further down the hill, but um, yeah. It's the same subsoil and it's the same exposure. It's the same exposure as well. So it's vine age and topsoil that are the differences between the two wines. Yeah, yeah. But we see, even though it sounds um, not a big difference in terms of uh, the soil type and the exposition, but um, in the wine we feel uh, quite a big difference. Wines from the Egon Vineyard tend to be uh, open a little bit earlier, so they are. we can start drinking them after two or three years already. They show all these um, fruity characteristics of a Ziffand already uh, at that time, where the wines from the Mandelhu Vineyard are still very closed, very, very compact. So if we give the... Um, the wines from the Mandelhu vineyard, a little bit more time to open up. Then they show more, later on, more complexity, more concentration compared to, to the wines from the Eagle vineyard. Do you handle them differently in the winery, those two wines? No, we don't. So in the cellar, really, they're treated the same way. 
all the grapes and all the wine from the single vineyard we treat the same way. We don't make a difference in here. They are all full clusters pressed and uh, we ferment the wines in large wood barrels, fill about 2,000 liters. They're old barrels. I mean, um, they're neutral in taste. So the barrels are on average 30, 40 years old when we get new barrels. Um, we make sure that they're neutral in taste. We water them and, uh, and so on. Fermentation is done in those large wood barrels. These are the traditional wood barrels that was always used uh, in our region and, and all over Austria. And after fermentation, there's one racking to get it off the um, gross lease. And you keep it with the other lease. And we leave them uh, later on with the, with the fine lease for about 10 to 11 months. And um, so we... We use the um, large wood barrels really, like the structure of the wood makes a much wider surface physically compared to stainless steel. So the natural sedimentation is, is much better in these barrels. So we don't need to filter until we get on a bottle. So there's only one filtration process when we bottle the wine later on. So in between the wine clarifies itself, it rests on the lease. We don't do batonnage on the wines. Since we have a high concentration from the grapes, like from the old vines and from the low yields, um, we don't feel like we bring a lot of additional goods or in from uh, the autolysis from the yeast into the wine. We don't look for the oily notes of glycerin. We leave it just on the fine leaves. And the oak we use in is from the local area. It's the Viennese woods. We source the oak for our barrels. So not filtered much and time on the fine leaves, that's probably not so common in Austria. Today, I think a lot of producers are coming back to this old or traditional method, really. A lot of producers have switched to 100% stainless steel tank over the last years. But when we talk to colleagues, then they tend to bring in some large wood barrels again, since they see that it does help to, to mature the wines and to to get them more of a character, really, like the terroir character. Since uh, when you work with stainless steel, you have to start filtering very early to get the wines clear. They don't clear themselves as good as within the, the large wood barrels. We don't treat the juice in a very reductive way, as it had become more and more over the last years. But this is uh, not so important for us, since our wines don't live from these very primary fruit flavors. So we... It's not a big oxidation that's happening, but some oxidation um, is fine for us before we clarify the juice. Pressing takes quite a while for us, and uh, during that time, uh, the juice is exposed to oxygen. And how do you feel about Malol for Zirflander? We usually don't look for malolactic fermentation, or we don't inoculate. So um, I would say 95% of our white wines do not see malolactic fermentation. However, when it starts, we, of course, you, you should not interfere, but uh, every winemaker is, should be aware of that um, because otherwise you get off flavors. So when um, malolactic fermentation starts, then it's okay for us. We don't try to interfere very much in during the uh, maturing of the wine. Of course, we, we always look after the wine and uh, we are very careful with the sulfur that we use in but um, usually we don't have malactic fermentation in our wines. And what about fermenting to full dryness? Especially when we, since we work with um, spontaneous fermentation, so it's natural yeast, 
always a question of how far fermentation go through, especially with higher sugar levels when we harvest them. And But um, wines from Diffel and Rotgate Fleur tend to have a little bit of residual sugar. I mean, they're classified as dry, but uh, they probably have a little bit more than four gram residual sugar. But that's okay for us. It's a stable wine. It has uh, some good acidity. So this balance between acidity and a little bit of residual sugar works fine in our wines, really. One way you could have gone would have been to bottle multiple product categories of the same vineyard, but you guys don't do that. You do one bottling from a vineyard. Why is that? Yeah, that's correct. We only do one wine every year from these single vineyards. From one vineyard, we don't do different selections. Um, Some other producers in Austria do that. So you will see uh, from the same vineyard, from the same producer, different selections. My grandfather hasn't done that. My father hasn't done that. And I I will not change that. We want to kind of uh, get a picture of the full characteristics of the vineyard and of the vintage. So we actually feel like, well, the vineyard uh, is prepared for harvest, of course. If there is uh, grapes that become moldy or anything uh, or rotten, we take them out, of course or grapes that won't get ripe, we take them out, but we don't make any wine out of these grapes, of course. But at the point of harvest, we make this one harvest, really, from one vineyard and bring it in. I I, I learned in Burgundy when I worked there for a little while, we made only uh, one uh, Mouraché and one Chevalier Mouraché, and there was no differences. And I think it's the same idea of getting the, um, the characteristics from this vineyard, really, rather than having always the richest wine from this vineyard or always the sweetest wine or whatever the selection is made for. So you do one pass only? You go through and do a harvest and then that's the one? Yeah, usually yes, but um, when we experienced to get uh, botrytis, we made a special selection. That's kind of an exception when we get botrytis. We produce Trockenbernoslese or Bernoslese from these grapes, but um, everything else, like the dry single vineyard wine comes from only this one selection of grapes. And what's the aging curve of Zofunder? I mean, you make it in three different iterations, but uh, yeah. how long should I be thinking about keeping it in my cellar yeah. in general? Well, the um, the classic version we of a Zofunder, the Zofunder Anninger, we usually drink within uh, four years, maybe five years. But um, when we talk about the single vineyard wines, we drink them for 10 years, which is kind of... Even if it was a difficult vintage or a warm vintage, uh, 10 years, it's it's not a problem at all. But it can go much further as well. For example, when we think of the vintage 2000s, it was a warmer vintage. So we should drink these wines now. But uh, for example, Mandelhoe wine from 1998, we can hold back for another 10 years. So anything that goes beyond the 10 years, it really depends on, on the vintage. In terms of aging, the Zierfandler will get more of these spicy characteristics. It, of course, it does have these rich fruit flavors, which remind on quince or very ripe apples and pears and a little bit of tropical notes. But then uh, you always have this, uh, these spicy characteristics, which are like grapefruit. So you have this acidity that comes with the Zierfandler varietal, this uh, citric, this lively characteristic of Ziffandler is kept for a very long time. And what about Roquefleur? Yeah, we do, um, similar to the Ziffandler, we do a classic style of a Roquefleur. Again, this comes from um, several vineyards around the Anninger Hill. 
And um, then we produce a single vineyard, Rotkipfer, from the vineyard uh, Tagelsteiner, which is compared to the, the vineyard Mandelhöhe, a little bit higher in elevation. This is very uh, interesting for Rotkipfer because if you go into a later ripening with Rotkipfer, you have to be careful to not losing uh, acidity too much. So this is very different, again, to the Zierfander, where the acidity stays very high into the late ripening, whilst the Rotkipfler can happen to lose the CD very quickly at a certain stage of ripeness. So with the higher elevation of this vineyard, we can go further into later ripening with uh, keeping the acidity up. And in terms of the soil type, like the topsoil again is weathered brown earth, and it's a bit richer, the clay is a bit richer, and that the limestone is more a type of a gravel rather than a sedimental. And what are the tricks to handling roquefort in a vineyard? It's not as delicate to work. The grape skin is thicker. The clusters are not so much compact like the Zierfandler grape varietal. But you have to control the yields, though. So roquefort can produce a lot of fruit. So you have to control the fruit from the beginning on. Not saying that you can produce a lot of grapes from roquefort because you have to limit the yields to an amount where we are down to around five or 6,000 kilogram per hectare, which is considered to be lower than with other grape varietals, like we're a bit leaner. So the situation with Zierflander is that you need to get it ripe, and the situation with Roquefleur is that you need to contain the yields. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the Zierflander brings naturally low yields, whilst the Roquefleur you have to work on the yields, like to, to control, to not have too much grapes on the vine, really. Similar uh, handling inside the winery. You use the large wood. Yeah, it's exactly the same way. Rotgipfer tends to have uh, less acidity compared to the Zierfandler. So when we compare the younger wines than Zierfandler with Rotgipfer, Rotgipfer tends to be more open from the beginning. It's a slightly more aromatic grape rattle by nature. And uh, from the beginning on, it, it feels a bit richer, a more creamier style, this kind of so sometimes I see those two grape varieties blended together, but you choose not to do that, and why not? There is a tradition to blend these two wines together, but this uh, comes more out of a time in the 1960s, 70s, where the winemakers were trying to, to adjust or through blending to create stuff sought after, you know, to have these um, balances and uh, maybe we, with a little bit more of residual sugar, but if we look back 100, 120 years, the wines at that time actually were field blends. So, um, and that time there was more than just Rotgipfler and Zierfandler in, in the wines. Oh, so maybe there together. would have been Riesling or Gruner. Exactly, or... yeah. There was Gruner, Riesling, Pinot Blanc, different grape varietals. One of the things that's interesting about your state is that you make a Gruner Valtliner as well to the Zierfandler and the Rotgipfler, and you do it on limestone, whereas a lot of the Gruner Valtliner that I think of from Austria is not grown on limestone. How do you think that affects the expression of the Gruner to be grown on limestone? Within our area, we do have the limestone, so I think this brings much more salty, chalky minerality into the wine. And um, compared to Gruner Valtliner that comes from Lus, which is much more fertile, and these wines there tend to be much rounder, softer, maybe more richer in fruit characteristics, like very ripe fruit. So the Grunewit leaners from our area tend to be more on the side of, like, compared with the Chablis. 
you were born at the Stadelman State, but you started there full-time helping with the winemaking in 2006. And, and what have the vintages been like from 2006 through 2014? What have been the difficult years? What have been the great years? What have been the years where you've learned something? Yeah, so 2006 was a very good vintage. I mean, it was a very dry summer, very um, long, beautiful autumn. Um, so the, the grapes were really in the perfect conditions to harvest and they were rich wines, this vintage, but also they had a good balance. And uh, when we look at the, the following year, 2007, it was a very difficult vintage. There was a lot of rainfall during this year. And uh, at the same time, we decided in 2006 to sign a contract for um, organic production. So um, we kind of started with a very difficult vintage, and um, but we learned a lot during this year, my father and myself. And uh, I think this helped a lot for the following vintages afterwards. But um, 2007 is a very beautiful vintage. It's just, uh, it was uh, very closed for a long time, but it opened just a few years ago and it shows a very beautiful, a very classic style of a vintage. And, uh, and later on, 2008, beautiful vintage, a bit richer in style again. Then we all can remember the, the vintage 2010. Again, a very, very difficult vintage. We had, all over the year, we had um, a lot of rain and hardly any sun. And uh, this was the year when the where there was the volcano outbreak in Iceland. And this probably has affected the vintage. It was just very little sun over the whole season. And um, we look at uh, vintages 2011 and uh, 2012. 2012 was... Again, exceptional warm vintage. So it's very ripe and very deep, um, very strong wines. Um, but in a sense that we still have a nice balance again. This is probably, even if we talk about warm and vintages, which uh, tend to occur more often over the, the last 15, 20 years, we see that coming more and more often. Um, due to the qualities of grape varietals like the Zierfandler and the, the Rotkipfler, um, we can maintain the uh, the acidity on a good level. Our yields on the soil in our region are comparably low. So this always keeps a good backbone, even in very warm vintages. And how has the change to organic farming helped you out or hurt you? I mean, what, what has it been like working organic? The difference is that the uh, fermentation starts easier since we work organically. That's probably the most obvious effect from our change to organic viticulture. Bernhard Stadelman of the Stadelman Winery in the Thermen region. He's championing little-known grape varieties, but which have a long history in his region. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you. Bernhard Stadelman of Weingut Stadelman. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tanoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe, 
on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.